0: Good morning, um, as been mentioned, we are in romans ten eighteen through eleven ten, but I ask, have they not heard indeed, they have for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world, but I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I am an Israelite. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant, chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and retribution for them let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever this is the very word of god
1: we've been studying together these uh, three chapters romans 9 through 11 now for the last several weeks and uh, when we come to these chapters they tend to give a lot of uh, of modern Christians difficulty to kind of understand the sustained argument that Paul has been dealing with uh, for these three chapters. You can see in the passage that uh, Bree just read for us, there are at least six Old Testament references and one very famous Old Testament story. That is mentioned in this passage. This is something that we've seen all throughout, especially these three chapters. Paul is reinterpreting Israel's great story for, in light of the coming of Israel's Messiah. He's taking his Bible, as it were, and saying, let's go back and read the story again. The story that you should be very familiar with In fact, I can say this to us Christians, the less familiar you are with your Old Testament, the more disconnect you're going to have with understanding the new, and especially the gospel of Jesus. And I mean it just as simply as this, the less familiar you are with the story, with the stories of your Old Testament. I want to pause here for just a moment and say how thankful we all should be for our children and youth ministry at Crosstown. One of the things they do for us with happening right up there as we speak is a lot of sharing the story, the story of the Bible. And if you came to faith later in life or you're not familiar with much of the Old Testament, so this story, let's say, that was mentioned here, the story of Elijah, if you're not familiar with this, It's going to be hard for you to track Paul's thought and Paul's argument. So let's be thankful for uh, those who are teaching our children and giving them instruction, teaching them the great story. It's critical. It's crucial to knowing the gospel. We have to know the story in order to know the Christian faith. You can't just pick up the Bible and start in the New Testament and understand all that Jesus means and all that he has done. And because this story, Israel's story, we've seen this now for the last several chapters, but just putting it before us again because Israel's story is our story, this is a story that we need to have in our minds as we come to understand the meaning of the Christian faith. At the end of Israel's story, Paul is standing here at this, of course, moment in history, immediately after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He points out to us that when we come to the end of the story, we find this one powerful and important truth. God has graciously spared a remnant within Israel so that, the hope of the gospel would spread to the world. God has graciously spared a remnant within Israel so that the hope of the gospel would spread to the world. It's no exaggeration to say that because God spared a remnant with Israel, you sang praises to Jesus, to Israel's Messiah. You would not be here worshipping Israel's Messiah had God not in grace spared a remnant. So as we look at what Paul is kind of dealing with in this section in Romans 9 through 11, let me let, let's talk about this. Let's talk first about this preserving a remnant. Second, the identity of the remnant, and then lastly, the purpose of the remnant. The preservation of a remnant, the identity of the remnant, and the purpose of the remnant. So we begin with this point that, as I've already said, is not incidental. To Israel's story. It turns out it is a key element of it. Paul is looking back now at his Old Testament and saying, Oh man, don't you see now why this sparing a remnant, this preservation of a remnant within Israel, it was a key to the whole story. It's what God has been up to all along. After God brings his righteous, justified judgment upon Israel, a remnant remains. God preserves a remnant. This is the kind of thing, Paul says, that God has done over and over again. And this remnant stands as a testimony to God's enduring faithfulness. Now, the last few verses of chapter 10 are meant to establish the fact that Israel, through their story, has no way to plead innocence. God had made himself known to them time and time again. You're familiar, I'm sure, just as you read through your Bible, how often God does some really dramatic and miraculous things on behalf of his people, and then shortly after that, they're complaining. They're murmuring. They're not believing. There's no way that Israel could claim innocence when it comes to how they view and what they believe about God. The only explanation for Israel's rejection of their own Messiah is that they have freely chosen to reject him. They bear the penalty, the punishment for their rebellion. In verse 21, Paul cites from One of Israel's own prophets, Isaiah, it's at the end of Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 65-2, and it's a place where God laments the pitiful place Israel is in. He says, all day long, I've held out my hands, the hands of welcome, the hands of invitation to a people who proves to be disobedient and contrary. Possessing God's good and righteous law only incited them to more egregious acts of sin. Israel, it turns out, at the end of the story, is no different than the pagan nations who live around them. In Israel's story, we see then that no matter how much God makes himself known, listen to this, no matter how much God does for someone, No matter how good, how patient, how kind, how gracious, how welcoming God is, the human heart, and I mean your heart and mine, is bent toward unbelief and disobedience. What else did God need to do as you read through your Old Testament? What else could God have possibly done to prove himself trustworthy to his people? Israel is proof, the nation of Israel, the story of Israel is proof that if you don't believe in God, if you don't trust in God, it's not because God hasn't proven himself. It's not because God hasn't done enough to make himself known. It isn't because God hasn't shown himself time and time again to be trustworthy. If you turn away from God, the only one who can bear that blame is, Is you. Moving on to chapter 11. We are still addressing the central issue of concern. Throughout these three chapters. What is God now going to do. With this disobedient and contrary people. Now that they have even gone so far as to say. Messiah. Nope. Want nothing of him. Now that they've even rejected God's own son. What else Could God possibly do surely at this point you would conclude God has no other choice but to move on God has no other choice but to say I have tried to make this people my own and they would have nothing of it So i'm done with them and let's be honest if you and I were god That's what we would do How many times have you said i i've had enough? I mean i've tried i've tried this i've tried that just it's over God absolutely would be understanding from our perspective if he finally decided, I got to do something else. But here we find in chapter 11, for the ninth time in Romans, you got one more coming. We'll see it next week. For the ninth time in Romans, Paul's strong denial of such, ability, such a possibility. By no means. God forbid. God cannot now abandon his people even after all of this. To even entertain such a possibility that God would finally conclude that he cannot put up with Israel anymore would be to cut off the branch of biblical theology that Paul stands on. We must remember that regardless of how disobedient and contrary Israel has proven themselves to be, rejecting their own nation's promised Messiah, for God to then respond, even though it seems completely justified, for God to then respond with, I'm just done with Israel, would be for God himself to become untrustworthy. God had said through the prophet Jeremiah, listen to these words, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Do you see the promise The promise of God in the Old Testament is, Israel deserves my complete and utter rejection. But it will never happen. I will not throw them away. So God has made it his word. He simply cannot now turn his back on Israel. And Paul says, if you're asking the question, well, now that Jesus has come, now that Messiah has come, and Israel has, as a nation, by and large, rejected him. Uh, has God, in fact, has he now finally decided to turn his back on Israel? Paul says, you don't have to look very far to find that, in fact, God has not given up. In verse 1, he says, I myself am an Israelite. And then notice he goes on to describe himself. He says, a descendant of Abraham, and there he's using that theologically significant term seed paul is saying that he himself is proof positive that god and god's promise to israel is still very much alive now i asked myself wonder why paul used himself as an example rather than maybe peter or one of the other disciples And I don't think there's anything in our text that would tell us for sure, but perhaps it's because Paul sees himself as something of a surprise. Remember, this is the one who calls himself elsewhere the least of the apostles. Unworthy, he says, to be called an apostle because, Paul says, I persecuted the church of God. If there was ever an Israelite who deserved to be rejected by god paul would be the best example so whatever the reason paul cites himself whatever the reason for why paul cites himself as an example he moves on in verse 2 to the story of elijah and his confrontation with jezebel and the prophets of baal he cites elijah's appeal to god in verse 3 but notice here the word appeal in verse 3 is followed by the words against israel It means that Paul understood that what Elijah was doing was complaining to God about Israel. Elijah is basically saying to God, after his confrontation with the prophets of Baal, Jezebel says, I'm taking you out. Remember the story? So Elijah runs. He's hiding from Jezebel, and he's making an appeal. He's making a complaint to God about Israel. He's basically saying to God, look, Israel... I mean, that's who we're talking about here. We're talking about the prophets of Baal are actually rebellious Israelites. These prophets of Baal have completely turned away from you. The only faithful one left is me. And guess what, God? They're about to kill me too. So there's only one thing you can do now, God. There's only one thing that would be just That would be justified. If you're truly a righteous God, there's only one thing you could possibly do. Namely, pour out your wrath on the nation. I'm the only one left and they're about to take me out too. God, if you care about your promise, you're going to have to eliminate the rest of the nation. But God denies the request. And in verse 4, Paul encourages us to remember what God says to Elijah, which is essentially no to this prayer request. Praise God. Sometimes God says no to what we ask for. I say that Paul encourages us to look at this because. What's interesting in verse 4, Paul uses a word. It's translated in the ESV as reply. That it, it, it sounds very insignificant. God said. But most commentators will point out this unique Greek word is used in, in other Greek literature of the day to refer to an official response to a question raised about a, a governmental policy. In other words... What God says next to Elijah is a general biblical principle. It's the kind of thing God does in response to our demand that he pour out his wrath. Here's what he says. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. This is not an answer that simply says, no, Elijah, you're wrong. There's 7,000 more. This is an official divine response. When we say, God, you're going to have to just pour out your wrath right now. Here's what God says. Instead of doing that, Elijah, I want you to know I've got a remnant. I want you to know I'm not done with the nation. And no matter how far the sinful heart goes in rebellion against God, nothing, even human rebellion against God, will nullify God's own sovereign decree. What God says He will do, and no human being can thwart that plan and that promise. So Paul now makes the point that he wants us to see in verse 5. From all that Old Testament story, Paul says, look, Christian, here's what you've got to know. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by God's grace. In other words, Paul's saying, look, what God did in the Elijah story is what God has done once again in the Jesus story. So who is this remnant? And how are they to be identified? Now, again, remember, the remnant in Elijah's day, God says, were 7,000 men who remained faithful to God in spite of the evil, idolatrous rule of King Ahab. Uh, By the way, the number 7,000 is almost assuredly symbolic. Like other multiples of seven in the Bible, you know, it stands for completeness. God is simply saying to Elijah... Things are going exactly as I planned. I've got the people I need. It reminds me of other Bible stories. You remember when uh, Gideon is going to go into battle and God says, you got too many people. <laughs> this doesn't make sense to us, right? Pair it down, lower it down. God says, I, I, I've got the number I need. Things are right on track. Elijah thought, there's no one left. I'm the only member left on God's team. There's only one thing God can now do, pour out his wrath. But God's ways are not like our ways. And God's promise, listen, God's promise will come to fruition not by wrath, not by judgment, but by grace. By grace, The remnant in both Elijah's day and in Paul's day are those who've remained faithful to God. But it would be incorrect for us to assume that they are inherently different than the disobedient, Baal worshipping Israelites that surrounded them. The remnant, the remnant, and which is why we don't have like the name. Let me give you the names of the remnant. God is simply saying the remnant represents something. Not so much those who are loyal to God. The remnant represents God who has been loyal to his people. This is intended to be a wake-up call for the Old Testament prophet. As Paul says it is for Christians today. Because this is the way of God. Rather than pouring out his wrath on Israel. God poured out his grace on a remnant. How God responded to Elijah, forced Elijah to consider, Why are you here, Elijah? Why have you not succumbed to the worship of Baal? Why under such threats as he faced now from Queen Jezebel, had he remained faithful? Why did he believe? And the answer is the same answer for why there was a remnant at all. Grace. It's the only word that explains the remnant in Elijah's day. Look what God says in verse 4. I have kept for myself. 7,000 men. God has made sure that a remnant has remained faithful to him. This is reassuring, of course, that God is still in control, but it is also instructive. Learn again the ways of God from Israel's story. This is a God who can be ultimately credited with the faith and faithfulness that is exercised by anyone toward him. If there's anyone who believes, if there's anyone who remains loyal, It is because God has kept them for himself. From beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. Now, those are the words, actually, from another Old Testament prophet who once proclaimed those words, who learned that lesson while he lingered in the belly of a great fish. But as the story of Jonah goes on to reveal, we who know the one who saves others often forget that he has done the same for us. When God goes on to pour out, not his wrath on the Ninevites, remember the story of Jonah, but his grace, (laughs) remember what Jonah does? He gets angry. Here's what he says in Jonah 4, verse 2. Remember, he's gone to Nineveh finally to preach to this city. And all he says, (laughs) here's Jonah's message. You got three days and God's going to wipe you out. And the whole city repents. Wish it was that easy. And Jonah sees the repentance of the people. And so he goes and camps out up on a hill and he gets mad. He gets mad. Here's what he says, Jonah 4, verse 2. Listen to these words. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In fact, he says, that's why I didn't want to come here. That's why I wanted to run the opposite direction. He saw that God's grace that was now at work in those people, But he had forgotten that God had done just the same with him. You see, the identity of the remnant can only be explained by these words that Paul says here. God kept for himself. The remnant exists according to, verse 5, the election of grace. This grace. Grace, clearly the one-sided, decisive action of God, completely rules out any talk of the election based on works. Verse 6 says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That's the same sort of thing that is said, of course, in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace, you have been saved through faith this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not according to works lest anyone should boast so anyone who finds themselves counted among this this remnant can only conclude that he or she got here one way only by grace you have to remind yourself christian of this Over and over and over again, nothing else can be offered even as a contributing factor. If it is by grace that you are counted among the people of God, then it is entirely by grace. Not mostly by grace, not almost all by grace, but sola gratia, only by grace And the reason we have to insist on this is not only because the Bible insists on it, but also because your instincts will frequently protest. As one commentator has rightly observed, many worry that the choosing of some and not all would be unjust. But this idea overlooks the fact that election is gracious. No one deserves to be elected, and thus the election of any is a merciful gift of God that cannot be claimed as a democratic right. If it's by grace, you have no rights. It is pure mercy. And by the way, Paul is telling us that now we can see that this grace of God is what has been, the, is what has been driving the promise forward all along, all through the Old Testament, Grace is not new in the New Testament. Grace has been sustaining, driving the promise forward all along. It was there in Elijah's day. It's not new in Paul's day. When Paul says in verse six, "It is no longer on the basis of works." He does not mean that it used to be on the basis of works, but now no longer is, that no longer there is logical, not temporal. So, we should stop thinking and acting as if God's electing grace has ever come to anyone any other way than the one-directional act of God. That is the identity of the remnant. Now, all of this, I'm eager to say to you, is quite relevant 2,000 years after Paul penned Romans. I contend that, not I will admit, not every Christian agrees with me on this, but I would contend that most of our energies, Christians, need to be spent on understanding what God has already done, not so much on what God is going to do. The final day has already come. We live in the final days. We have for 2,000 years. It's natural for us to wonder, well, how much longer, how much longer? But God, over and over and over again, drives us back to say, see what has already been done, see what has already been fulfilled. We live in an amazing time and space on the other side of the coming of Messiah. You, you're not getting this. I don't get this. This is hard for us to grasp. It's hard to live in light of such an amazing moment that happened so long ago. But as Christians, this is what we confess. This is what we believe. So in verse 7, Paul asks with a simple question, "What then?" <laughs> so what? What now? What of it? did the same in Romans 9.30 at the end of his retelling of Israel's story. And so in other words, he's wanting to draw together some implications from this truth that he's been highlighting. question that he's been addressing through these three chapters, again, is whether God has abandoned his people. Is he done with Israel? And in our text today, we saw that he strongly denied that and showed us that what God has been up to all along, while it looks like maybe God's just turned his back, poured out his wrath on Israel. What God has been up to all along is preserving a remnant. A remnant that has its identity solely on the basis of God's sovereign grace. And now, why? Why? why has God preserved a remnant completely by sovereign grace? To what end? For what purpose? And the most important answer to that question is the one that was asked at the very beginning. The most important reason, the most important purpose is the righteousness of God. That is, the fact that God has shown himself To be righteous, just, justified. God has kept his promise through and through. And you and I need to see this just like Elijah needed to see it because we are regularly tempted to doubt it. One of the problems that modern Christians, that we Christians, that I have... Is not that God doesn't keep his promise, but we expect God to do things he never promised to do. While all along, not sinking our teeth into the great promise that he has already kept. See What is the promise that God has kept? How relevant is the Old Testament promise to your life? I'm a pastor. I talk to people all the time, and then I see in them what I see in the mirror. We regularly get confused about what it is God has promised to us. So let's look at it very carefully here in verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain What it was seeking. But the elect obtained it while the rest were hardened. Now. When Paul says Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. We know what he's talking about because he's already spoken like this in this section. Back in Romans 9.31 he said Israel pursued a law of righteousness but did not succeed in reaching that law. You remember that? This is the difficulty, of course, of taking so long to preach through Romans. This isn't long, you know. Some people take a lot longer. But if you were if you were just reading Romans, this was like, oh yeah, just a few minutes ago, we talked about this. But this was weeks ago for us, so we have to remind ourselves. Israel failed to attain what it was they were seeking. What were they seeking? A law of righteousness. They did not succeed in reaching that law. So what is the promise exactly? I know, like, I, in my manuscript, I had to write at the top. I had to say, okay, remind myself, define the term. So this, I, this is challenging for us. But the promise that the law made was the promise of life. God said to his people, do this, do this law, and you will live. You will live. But the law that Israel sought for life ended up proving itself to be death for them. And remember, this brings up all kinds of, well, then does that mean the law is sin, that the law is evil? And Paul has to say over and over again, against the antinomians, then and now, of course not. Of course not. Why did this law that promised life end up proving itself to be death? Not because there was a problem with the law. By the way, this is all Romans 7, that whole I want this. Paul's already unpacked all of this for us. Not because there was a problem with the law, but because there was a problem with them. They're just like the nations around them. And the law had this intended divine purpose, paradoxical paradoxical as it would seem. And that is to lure the nation into that place that the whole world was in, into sin. So that, Romans 8, 3, it could be finally dealt with. Because look what he says. But the elect, that is the remnant, they did attain it. And you're supposed to say, well, how? How did the elect obtain it? How did some within Israel obtain the law of righteousness when the rest didn't? And Paul would be eager to say, it was not that some within Israel succeeded in Torah observance they they obeyed the law and therefore ended up in life it turned out to work for them they did better at it this whole section we've been looking at today absolutely denies that as your possible interpretation the only reason that the remnant obtained the life that the law promised was grace it's the only reason It was only because of grace. It was only because of faith in Christ. The one that the law was meant to lead them to in the first place. Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. The goal of the law to everyone who believes. So let's be clear. The purpose of the remnant is, of course, in the first place, so that God's promise would be fulfilled. God would be seen as righteous. The one who makes the promise and keeps it. That's important. But the promise, the promise that God made was life. And Paul's saying, look, it's there. The elect, the remnant, have obtained it. Have attained it. They have gotten into the life that the law promised. But was unable to deliver. Hmm. The promise of God. Is. There's no other word for it. It's, it's life. But what is this life? It's the life that is found. In Christ. And experienced. In Christ. Jesus said these words. You'll remember them. This. This. Is eternal life. And he didn't say. When you die. You go to heaven. Here's what he said. This. Is life eternal. That they may. Know you. The only true God. And Jesus Christ. Whom you have sent. Brothers and sisters, don't you see why Paul was so excited about the gospel of Jesus? The long-awaited promise, the promise of life, the promise that the law offered but was unable to deliver on was now here. And the remnant, the elect, had obtained it. They had gotten in because they knew God. They knew his son. They knew who he was. They enjoyed communion with him. They experienced him. John says, we touched him. We saw him. We heard him. He, the one, the eternal life. Eternal life then, according to the Bible, does not begin after death. It begins now, if you believe in Jesus. And by the way, if you don't have it now, you won't have it then. And that's the scary news, because he says the elect attained it, verse 7, but the rest were hardened. Make no mistake, this is what most uh, Greek scholars will call a divine passive. God hardened them, as the quotations in verses 8 through 10 make clear. What is this hardening? It is an evidence of the judgment, the final judgment. Of God it's terrifying it's absolutely terrifying it is nonetheless justified remember what else could God do for his people I mean he's he's given them even his own son what is he gonna do if they reject his son this hardening this hardening is the breaking in of the final absolute judgment of God by the way If you're worried right now that you have a hardened heart against God, the fact you're worried about it is evidence you're not. So be at peace. This hardening of the heart is the final wrath of God. It is, God's the only one who can see it. It is final and absolute. It is justified. The real scandal is the grace. But even here, even here, we're, we're living in a day, Paul says, where the final, like the, the last day promise, but the thing that you've always thought is like way out there in the future, some sometime when Jesus comes back, is already happening now. Eternal life and eternal judgment have both broken in to the present. But even here, and especially here, This God of grace is doing the unexpected. Well, you know your Old Testament. You should expect it. He is in the hardening of the hearts. He is suspending the final judgment so that the remnant will fulfill its ultimate purpose. These are not the few who are left, by the way. But the few who were left After the coming of Jesus, now on the other side of God's kingdom coming, holding a candle, one commentator says, not as the night starts to fall, but as the day begins to break. This is a remnant that God chose, elected by his grace, with the intention not just of saving a few, but of saving a multitude from every tribe, from every tongue. If you are counted among God's people, among God's remnant, now on the other side of his judgment, your purpose is to welcome more into the kingdom of God. You were chosen by grace. It's the only way you got here. But you were also chosen for grace to be extended the life giving grace of Jesus for all who will believe. That's your purpose. To be more explicit, back in chapter 10, verse 19, Paul says, he quotes from Isaiah, and he makes a strange little comment. He, well, I'm sorry, he quotes from Moses, uh, from Deuteronomy, and he says, strange little comment. He says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. So let me uh, just whet your appetite a little bit for what's coming next week. Your job, if you're counted among the people of God, this is going to be fun, is to make people jealous. Hmm. Come back next week. We'll find out what that means. Let's pray together.